Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining this sixth and final webinar in our 2022 Science and Life series on rare diseases. I'm Sean Sanders, the Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and it's my pleasure to act as moderator for today's roundtable conversation. We've spent the majority of this 2022 webinar series exploring various facets of the rare diseases space, from the role of innovation hubs and centers of excellence to the need for improvements in patient registries. What we often come back to, though, is the intensely personal impact of any rare disease on the patient and their family. Current medical systems, clinician training, insurance programs, and many other organizational structures encountered by those seeking treatment for a rare disease, for the most part, just don't seem able to handle the complexity and uniqueness of these conditions. So today we're going to take a deep dive into this subject, looking at, as the title states, the profoundly personal side of rare disease. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. It's now time to introduce our esteemed guests. As always, I will give each of them the opportunity to tell you who they are and what they do. And uh, let's begin with Dr. Kathleen Bogart, who was a guest on one of our previous webinars uh, in uh, last year, I believe. So uh, Kathleen, thank you so much for agreeing to join us again. Thank you so much for having me again. Um, I'm a big fan personally of this series of webinars, so it's so exciting to be back. Um, so my background is that I was born with Mobius syndrome, which is a rare neurological disorder resulting in facial paralysis and impaired lateral eye movement. So my experience growing up with a rare disorder that affected my communication made me fascinated with communication and with psychology. So um, I pursued graduate work and I'm now an associate professor of psychology at Oregon State University, where I teach and study about these very issues. So I study psychosocial issues surrounding rare diseases, disability and ableism. And a lot of my research has focused on the role of social support and stigma <clears throat> in the lives of people with rare disorders. I'm also involved in rare disease and disability advocacy. I serve on the Mobius Syndrome Foundation uh, Scientific Advisory Board and the American Psychological Association Committee on Disability Issues and Psychology. Um, and I'm passionate about communicating um, about disability and rare disease issues to the public, like here, um, and in my Psychology uh, Today blog. So again, so exciting to be back. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Uh, our second panelist is Alana Yi. Uh, welcome, Alana. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'm a young adult who for the past eight years has been impacted by a rare neurological condition called autoimmune encephalitis. And I've experienced many sides of the diagnostic and therapeutic journey. Before I got sick, I had worked in hospital labs performing diagnostic investigations. After I got sick, I spent five years undiagnosed while suffering from dementia-like symptoms. And now, after getting into remission as a result of seeking treatment in both Canada and the United States, I have become very involved in patient advocacy. Currently, I serve as the program director for the nonprofit Encephalitis 411. Wonderful. Thank you, Alana. 
Uh, and finally, we have Dr. Amrit Ray. Uh, thank you so much for joining the call, Amrit. Thank you very much, Sean. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I am a big fan of this series and honored to be uh, part of the dialogue. Uh, my background is personally that I'm a rare disease advocate and uh, a rare parent. And then professionally, uh, I'm a physician researcher. I've been involved in the biopharmaceutical industry the last uh, couple of decades and had some executive roles relating to overseeing research, uh, access, and then also advocating for uh, policy changes. I'm very interested in looking at a uh, bioethical perspective and some of the ethical aspects that surround rare disease. Um, I wear a few different hats. So today I'm here to share my uh, personal views and not representing any organization. I'm very, very uh, happy to participate with such an esteemed panel. Wonderful. Thank you again, uh, uh, all of you, for being here. Thank you, Amrit. Um, it's wonderful to have all of you. Um, so I'd like to start the discussion um, with sort of a, a personal note. When we began this series a, a couple of years ago, um, I was admittedly naive about the topic. I didn't know a lot about it. I've learned a huge amount in the last few years. Um, but something that one of the panelists said quite early on, which is something I'm sure you've, you've heard many times, but it was new to me, is that collectively rare diseases are not rare. And so the name, I know there are, there are some advocates who say the name is a bit of a misnomer. It's not, the diseases on an individual level are rare, but there are millions of people around the world who are suffering from these rare diseases. So the first question I wanted to ask, and, and Amrit, I'll put this to you. Um, how do you think about this fact in a world where so much attention goes to well-known diseases like heart disease and certain cancers? Uh, I'd love to, you know, to get your, your perspective, both as a rare parent and from someone in the biopharmaceutical space. Absolutely. I think this is something that uh, really merits discussion because it's a surprise for many people to know that what may be individually rare is actually collectively common. And when you look at this, um, you can take a global view. Um, maybe I can start with the United States and give you a quick few other perspectives from elsewhere or areas where I've had the opportunity to work and it's inevitably eye-opening uh, around the world. In the United States, there are uh, about 30 million Americans who are uh, diagnosed as having a rare disease and who are considered as having a rare disease. Diagnosis is a separate question, but if you look at that, the 30 million is almost like one in 10. And you start thinking through the family members, the um, social contact of those one in 10. And I imagine that every single person listening to this webinar is probably in touch with someone with rare diseases. If you look at Europe, you find very similar numbers, about uh, 30 million Europeans are estimated. And then if you look in Asia, I've had the chance to work in China a lot recently, and um, you know the Chinese government has recently been putting out new definitions, a list of uh, more than 120 rare diseases in the last couple of years. So um, the numbers are quite staggering, John, uh, just in terms of uh, rare and the surprise that it's in fact not rare. Another lens to take, though, is also, um, I think, beyond just the, the numbers and the statistics, the epidemiology population, but at the individual, the human level, uh, the level of I think uh, suffering, the impact on broader life. Uh, if all of us just sort of step back, I think it's, uh, it's 
uh, a very natural thing to look at this at a, at a personal level and say the impact on life is so wide. I know some of my fellow panelists are going to speak at that. Now, you can also look at this and say that from a societal level, there is a very significant impact. And um, recently, you know, we had a publication in the United States of the Economic Burden Study, which estimated the burden of rare disease or the cost in many ways, not just for the immediate medical cost, but for the broader, uh, sometimes harder to measure costs, indirect costs, impact on family and so forth, uh, of a number that is quite staggering, exceeded a trillion dollars okay, for the United States. And that only actually looked at a small subset. That looked at um, the 400, little bit under 400 out of more than 7,000 rare diseases. So that's probably an underestimate. And to put that into context, you know, if, uh, a couple of years ago, there's a look at diabetes and that similar total cost of diabetes was about $327 billion. So uh, it's sometimes uh, an eye-opening experience to see just how impactful it is at the human level, societal level uh, around the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to pick up on something that you said um, that you know, one in 10 people in America have a rare disease. There are many people impacted that are uh, related to them, their families that treat them, social workers, you know, uh, et cetera. But what I want to touch on, and Kathleen, I, I'm interested to get your perspective on this because my understanding is that there are many rare diseases that we don't know about. So maybe we have friends, even family members who might have a rare disease that we just don't know about. So, you know, we, we don't even realize that impact. So Kathleen, I know you, you've mentioned before that you have a rare disease that is obvious um, it's not something can be hidden, but there's many people that have a hidden rare disease. So I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Right. Um, and that's, a, I think, an important distinction, right? So um, some rare diseases are apparent and some are invisible or hidden. Um, and it's actually much more likely that people have a hidden rare disease. Um, and there are challenges on you know both sides of that spectrum of course um one of the challenges that people with invisible rare diseases experience is um is challenges getting a diagnosis we've done research um, where we find that those with invisible conditions are less likely to be believed by their friends and family members and even by doctors um, in some instances. And so that can lead to an even greater diagnostic delay. Um, You know, some of the research that we've done, we found um, that there is on average a seven to nine year diagnostic delay in America. Um, And we think some of those people with um, the invisible conditions are uh, especially likely to experience challenges with that. now, those with uh, apparent uh, disorders like me have a different set of challenges. So um, I have a disorder that is readily, readily apparent. Um, and so I like to call Mobius syndrome um, highly visible but unrecognizable, right? Because there's so little general um, awareness about facial paralysis or Mobius syndrome um, that I might walk into a room and people would notice that I look different, um, but 
they might struggle to put their finger on why and make all sorts of misinterpretations. And we find, we find this happens with all sorts of um, facial paralysis disorders, most of which are rare, um, that you know we maybe mis, uh, mischaracterize as simply being unfriendly or being unintelligent. And so, you know, you can see how that might be multiplied by the thousands of types of rare disease out there. Um, so yeah, there really are some specific psychosocial cha uh, challenges depending on whether a condition is rare or common. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on the theme of diagnostic delay. Mm -hmm. um, living with no diagnosis is like wandering through a perpetual fog while dealing with the grief and logistical nightmare of being forced to make adjustments to your lifestyle, your aspirations, your career your career plans, while facing an undefined nameless monster. You don't know how big the monster is, which direction it's coming from, whether it will come in with a lethal hit and where its vulnerabilities are. So being on that journey in the fog leaves you with a sense of fear and uncertainty that can make it seem impossible to move forward in any meaningful way. As an example, in my patient journey, I had been a previously healthy young adult aiming for a career in academia when I had a flu-like illness that left me with significant memory problems. Um, I went to my doctor, I went to some specialists and got some diagnostic investigations done and nothing came back abnormal. Meanwhile, I continued to deteriorate and suffer from globalized cognitive decline. So not just the memory problems, but issues with verbal fluency, um, executive dysfunction, slow processing speed. And that was to the extent that I had to leave university altogether. And so there I was experiencing this profound debilitation. Meanwhile, I didn't have any objective evidence to validate my experience. And in this scenario, I think what tends to happen for rare disease patients is that their experience is dismissed and psychologized. They may receive a diagnosis of depression or anxiety, which can act as a red herring in medical records and distract from the search for the primary cause of symptoms. And ultimately the patient is kind of just left in this position where they're expected to move on and learn to power through things. Hmm. Alana, if I could, I mean, I think that I really appreciate your courage in sharing that and the same Kathleen. And, you know, one of the things that always struck me, even as a physician myself, you know, when I was advocating for my uh, daughter with a rare disease and, um, you know, first became familiar with the term, the diagnostic odyssey, um, it really didn't sink in until I looked at the numbers. And on average, uh, patients who are diagnosed in the United States with a rare disease have to go through 17 different healthcare professionals before they get a diagnosis. Um, so there's certainly a delay, but um, I think we can all empathize with um, how difficult it is to re-explain yourself and to be referred from one place to the next. Uh, and just the, you know, frankly, the time, the burden, the, um, the psychological stress and impact of having to deal with that. But 17, um, that is too many. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lana, if I could just pick up on something that you said as well. I, I'm, I'm interested to know when you started going through this, um, this journey, how did you explain to people 
around you, your friends and your family, when it, it must have been very confusing to you. You know, you, you didn't know what was going on with yourself. You knew that something was wrong, but like you said, you didn't have any objective evidence. So how do you talk to the people around you? Because I think that could be really helpful for others who are maybe going through a similar journey. Yeah, well, uh, candidly, there was a lot of despair and social isolation because you're essentially living in a reality that the medical system is not acknowledging. And you can sometimes grapple with, with the question of, are your symptoms real or are they psychosomatic? And it becomes very easy for others, um, friends, spouses, employers, to disregard the very real day-to-day challenges you face if you have no name for the cause of your suffering. And in concrete terms for me, it was very shocking and devastating to lose my cognitive capacity and be um, medically gaslit by some doctors into believing nothing was medically wrong. And then to be expected to plan for the future and take care of myself when I had no idea what tomorrow would bring. And I never anticipated that the monster would only grow bigger and slowly disable me over five years until I was catatonic. It's hmm. amazing. Yeah, I, you know, to echo what Amrit said, I, I very much appreciate you sharing, you know, your personal story. I'm sure it isn't easy. Um, there's a, something else that you touched on that um, sort of put a question in my mind, and Amrit, maybe I, I can address this to you. Um, do you feel that there is a, or do we see a difference in the diagnosis of men versus women um, with these, these rare diseases that are not obvious, they're not apparent? Um, because it, it, it see, I've seen evidence that women tend to be, be believed less than men when they talk about a symptom um, that is not obvious and they are more often told that it's psychological, uh, a psychological issue rather than a real medical issue. So I, I'm not sure if you can speak to that. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, John. I don't know if there are studies to show or evidence to show that. Mm -hmm. um, I have you know, a few broader reflections on diagnosis, but uh, maybe uh, Kathleen or Alana would like to comment on that. Well, I can say that we've done um, qualitative research um, on women with rare diseases, and they do share a lot of these same um, experiences that, that Alana was talking about of being medically gaslit. Um, and so I just wanted to say, Alana, that, that that story is horrifying and, and also compelling, right? And thank you so much for sharing it. Um, I think, sadly, it's not that uncommon for, for women to experience something like, like you did. Um, and I'm really glad that we're having conversations like this to raise awareness about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I echo that. I, I uh, really appreciate the courage in sharing that because I think that will impact um, many others when they hear the story. I, one, one thing, Sean, you know, I would just put as a, uh, a perspective to consider as well, though, is that um, you know, the majority of patients with rare diseases, about 70% of them, are uh, diagnosed in children. Okay? Mm. And uh, children are, of course, um, not in a position to advocate for themselves. So, you know, the voiceless in many ways. And um, when you consider that, um, and then you look at, um, for example, the steps taken to diagnose, and, you know, going back to that very difficult odyssey we talked about, um, right now in the United States, 
you know, there have been a lot of effort placed on expanding newborn screening, you know, so to start right at the beginning. Um, but even if you look at newborn screening, you know, uh, I'm just looking at some of the numbers in front of me, and there are about 12,000 babies born in the United States every year with a treatable, okay, with a treatable condition. Um, but in terms of, you know, um, the screening that takes place, it's unfortunately quite inconsistent around the country mm. and varies from state to state. So there is a uniform um, screening panel that is recommended, the RUSP, but uh, even though we know it, and even though that there are, you know, a, a finite list of diseases and we could still expand the list of diseases, today, that recommended panel is not used in all states. In fact, it's not used in more than half of the U.S. states. So um, I think, in you know, in in many senses, um, you know, we're giving up an opportunity there. We're giving up uh, a chance to help children that um, is in our hands. You know, and I think all of us could probably see that um, a a baby's life shouldn't depend on what zip code they're born in. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I appreciate you bringing that up, and we, we did a webinar, um, I believe it was last year, on some of the challenges with, with uh, prenatal and neonatal screening, um, and how it differs, like you said, across the U.S. and, of course, around the world, where uh, some countries are much better than others, and some countries have no screening um, for, for obvious reasons. Um, so um, I wanted to, that it actually sort of kind of links into my next question, which I wanted to put to Kathleen. Um, in a very practical sense, how does the classification of a patient's condition as a rare disease impact the, the care that they might receive? Well, you know, there's good and bad there. <clears throat> um, having a rare disease, of course, um, means that, as we have already discussed, um, it is more likely that we experience diagnostic delay or you know, may go on for years with without a diagnosis altogether. Um, so that is very challenging. Um, the the plus side, at least if we are talking about you know certain countries like America, um, where there are some policies that actually protect people with rare diseases. So um, here in America, I'm thinking about the Orphan Drug Act that actually was created um, through lobbyists uh, many years ago to ensure that people with rare diseases um, are being um, offered drugs and drugs being developed for this group of people that um, perhaps otherwise um, this would not occur because there would be a perception that the audience for this this drug would be too small to make it financially feasible. Um, so policies like this actually ensure that um, people with rare diseases are prioritized in medical research, um, at least to some extent. Uh, the, of course, the great thing is that it's not just people with rare diseases who benefit. A lot of times these um, these medical and drug breakthroughs that are made um, because of these policies end up benefiting people with many diseases, common or rare. Um, the other kind of very tangible thing that, that I can um, talk about from my own experience is, you know, 
being a person who has a disease that affects only two to 20 per million, um, it means that I would never encounter someone with Mobius syndrome in my everyday community. You know, um, lots of common diseases come with uh, support groups, you know, at their local um, community center or hospital, right? But um, I did not meet anyone with Mobius syndrome until I was in my mid-20s. Um, and to do that, I had to travel across the country to a um, conference for people with Mobius syndrome. And um, I, I fell in love with the experience of kind of being uh, being a majority group member for the first time in my life, you know, being surrounded by other people who looked like me and not having to explain. Um, so, so I got very involved in, in that organization and haven't uh, missed a conference since. But, um, you know, I think the opportunity to connect with other people um, while quite rare um, when you have a rare disorder um, can be really, really valuable. That's a great point, Kathleen. I mean, I, um, I think one of the positive things that I have really experienced in the rare community is um, the coming together of patient organizations mm -hmm. and um, the willingness of patient organizations to be very welcoming, very inclusive, but also uh, very generous in sharing their experiences, their learnings, you know, their insights so that um, as a total community, we can uh, hopefully you know, bring more impact and advocate more strongly. Uh, I have the uh, honor of serving on the board of the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, which is very involved in policy making, and have had the opportunity to partner with you know many dozens of organisations for individual rare diseases. Um, Europe has Eurodis, and the, you know there are organisations spring up uh, around the world, which I take as a very positive step because of this need to increase awareness, increase education, and increase um, what I like to call health literacy. So Alana, maybe I could, I could come to you with the next question that sort of comes out of the, what we've just been talking about. Um, <clears throat> so I, I understand that you finally got a diagnosis for your rare disorder, so you're now in that group of somebody who's been classified with a rare disease. So I'm, I'm interested to know about the mental and emotional um, journey that you had before you had your diagnosis and then after, and what changed, uh, if anything changed for you, and, and you know, if that helped at all in moving forward uh, in your life with a rare disease. Yeah, it helped immensely to be able to connect with a, a patient community and to understand that I wasn't alone in dealing with, with my issues and that, um, you know, my illness isn't, though it is rare, it's not as rare as I was originally um, kind of led to believe. And being able to connect with a patient community really helped to open my eyes to the power of self-advocacy. Self and I wouldn't be alive today were it not for um, like getting onto Facebook groups and other online forums and asking fellow patients questions about how to navigate the medical system and uh, to receive um, practical medical tips from them and equipping myself with knowledge so that way I could ask uh, better questions from my doctors and have more productive conversations with them. And um, 
you know, that said, it did take me years to understand the true power of self-advocacy. And that was also with having prior exposure to the medical system. So um, I think uh, there, there can be a lot of value to broader society and perhaps reframing the role of doctors and patients in medical care, which is something that kind of came out of my um, conversations with connecting with fellow patients and caregivers. Um, and, you know, the average doctor can do more to um, kind of uh, demonstrate, demonstrate respect for the patient voice and encourage patients to seek out more reliable information and connect with patient support groups and see patients as meaningful collaborators in their care. And the average patient can also do more to recognize the value in seeking out reliable information and empowering themselves and stepping into a more active role uh, in their care. But, you know, that's not to place blame on either side for struggling to manage a rare disease. It's simply to kind of draw awareness to the fact that, um, you know, patient support groups and patient advocacy um, that um, brings a very valuable lens to the table. Wonderful, thank you. Um, Amrit, um, I wonder if I could ask you about your experience, uh, sort of as a similar question, but from the perspective of a parent and what you went through with your daughter in that diagnostic odyssey and the, the impact that it had on your family and uh, your relationship with your daughter as well. Yeah, thank you, uh, Sean. I, I think, I mean, first of all, you know, um, I empathize, Alana, with a lot of the things that you're describing. You know, it means a lot to um, meet others and to join the community, and it's not easy to do that. Um, I I found, you know, that there were a couple of things that really stood out to me. First is um, there is uh, a, there is inevitable process of education, you know, that certainly begins with self education. Okay, um, need to do that, but uh, also many times. Um, being an advocate to educate um, your carer and to educate, you know, your um, physician or nurse or whoever it may be. And typically what happened is that you, what, what can happen is that, you know, you're first dealing with generalists and then you're dealing with specialists and then you're dealing with subspecialists and super specialists. And um, by the time you're, you know, many, many steps down the chain, uh, the, you know, the education need can certainly uh, have gone down on the technical and medical aspects, but your education need remains on the human aspects, which is, you know, um, for in my case, you know, what is the impact of um, you know, the rare disease on schooling? You know, what is the impact on the, of the rare disease on ability to play with other children? You know, what is the impact of the rare disease on the practicalities of parenting? know what are the costs associated with that those type of things i think still require you know a great deal of education conversation and dialogue um that's the first thing i think the the second thing is actually interesting alana you know hearing you mention facebook groups because of course you know 20 years ago probably uh, you know no one had facebook groups and 10 years ago fewer and fewer but um I look at social media as actually being a tremendously positive opportunity and a great, you know, positive channel. And, uh, you know, if I put on a slightly different hat, as that more of the more the researcher and educator, um, what I've, I've always been struck by is that if you look at just health literacy at general, 
in general, you know, not even for rare diseases. It is usually down in the single digits in most countries around the world. So the ability to obtain and use health information, I can only imagine that it's worse for rare diseases. But where reading literacy is often up, you know, near 100%, um, health literacy is down in these single digits. In the United States, it's actually about 12%, according to CMS. So only one in 10 Americans would be able to uh, be considered proficiently health literate. That's a very difficult number. Um, and I think all of us have a role to play in lifting that number. But what's really interesting, you know, picking up Milan on your point, is that social media and digital literacy um, is very highly penetrating. So digital literacy is typically up in, you know, uh, near 100%. And in some countries in the world, it's actually more than 100% because people have multiple phones or multiple SIM cards. And I think that presents us with an opportunity. Um, one thing that struck me is that if you actually look now, you know, as we all react to different channels, if you take all of Facebook encounters, all of Instagram encounters, and all of Twitter encounters, one channel, TikTok, exceeds them all today. So in a sense, that's an opportunity for us to be sensitive and aware of that as a mechanism to increase health literacy. I mean, I think the future is going to be digital health literacy. Mm -hmm. uh, Kathleen, Alana, any thoughts on, on any of that? Yeah, uh, well, for me, um, uh, being able to connect with others online has been huge in my, in my journey. And um, I mean, well, Doctors understandably don't have the time to scour the latest medical journals and connect with patient organizations or attend conferences. And sometimes patients are the ones that are better, better positioned to do this. And they become experts in their illness in their own right. They have the lived experience, they get resourceful, they connect with others online, they go into PubMed and try to find those medical journals to, to answer the questions or the, the problems they're trying to solve. And they, they do their, their own research. And I think that's something that can tend to be um, underappreciated in maybe the average patient-doctor uh, relationship today. I completely agree with these points. And, and yeah, just want to... <laughs> want to emphasize how helpful connecting with others online has been for me as well, you know, in terms of um, becoming more expert in my own, um, in my own disorder, um, and, and getting to know other people, right. So as I mentioned, you know, I would either have to travel across the country or across the world to, to meet others. But um, as the internet has uh, has opened up, uh, it means that I'm able to connect with people across the world very easily. And um, I can actually see, you know, a major change in my own lifetime. So, um, of course, as Amrit said, uh, you know, I was born with my rare disease, so I was a, a child with a rare disease, and it was my, my parents who needed to go through that diagnostic odyssey and learn about the condition. Um, and it took two years for them to, to get a diagnosis for me. Um, and that was at a time when you know, people did not have regular access to the internet. So they really struggled. They were in many ways privileged that they had, um, you know, high health literacy and some access to medical journals and things like that. Um, but 
I think now about how much easier that journey would have been if they had access to connecting with other parents. Um, I can see in the uh, Facebook groups now, there are always parents who are, you know, joining and saying, we, you know, we think our child has this diagnosis or we were just diagnosed, you know, and watching them get, you know, kind of immediate support and information from others. Um, yeah, so it's so lovely to to see that change happen in my own lifetime. And also, it just makes me think about how thankful I am that my parents um, persevered with fewer resources in that, you know, domain than there are now. Yeah, I often... I think... Go ahead, Alana. I was just going to say, um... I think um, another angle to look at this is uh, even if um, you're not coming up with answers or finding solutions to your immediate uh, medical issues, um, I mean, doctors can still provide a lot of benefit in um, simply, you know, seeing the patient as a full-fledged human being and not just a set of lab values or, um, uh, you know, they there's a lot of value in acknowledging their suffering and being open about saying, I don't know, or just engaging in meaningful dialogue or, um, you know, respecting a patient's choice to keep pursuing answers elsewhere. And that approach from doctors was so powerful and it helped to inspire a sense of confidence, resilience, hope, and grit, which can act as a shield against just succumbing to despair and <laughs> waving the white flag and losing the will to live. So, um, you know, even if the doctors feel like they can't necessarily do anything concretely for the patient, actually, um, you know, remembering that human component to the patient uh, interaction, like that, that is huge. Right. So there's, there's so many things that I want to speak to you all about, but I, I'm going to have to move on because uh, there's also quite a few things that we want to cover before the end. Um, so, uh, Amrit, I'm, I'm going to put this question to you. Um, so it's clearly important that we need to bring together communities, people um, who are medically literate, who know about rare disease and the patients who are experiencing these rare diseases. Um, and one of the things that has come out of our previous webinars is this has to be an international endeavor because, um, you know, as, as Kathleen was saying, there's only a few people in a million who might suffer from Mobius syndrome. So we need to have access to the worldwide community to pull together all of those people. So how do we do this? How do we reach across the world uh, to share information and expertise and, and talking about social media? How do we leverage technologies in order to do this? Do you, do you have any thoughts? Well, it's it's um, it's a very very important question because I think what you're uh, what you're pointing to is as the shifting gear a little bit from um, diagnosing and understanding, but to reach for solutions. Mm -hmm. And uh, in reaching for solutions, you know, a few of the dilemmas and then a few of the things that I think present us with you know positive lights and more needs to be done, but. A few of the challenges are always going to be with very small numbers you know, uh, of individual diseases. And I think everyone can empathize with that. I, you know, I, I, um, just reflecting, Kathleen, on the numbers you were sharing about Mobius. But I think uh, many rare diseases individually have very small numbers. And as a result of that, it can often be quite difficult to do research. 
within one particular locality or one particular country. So the opportunities there uh, are multifold. You know, there are sometimes opportunities to bring together information from across different countries and different communities. There are opportunities to put together registries that um, allow us to study diseases you know, in a quite a methodical way over time, opportunities to use real world evidence. And sometimes, you know, a lot of clinical studies look at using controls, but when the numbers are very small, it'd be very difficult to find controls. And just for, you know, at a layer level, it, it's very e still easy to understand that if you have a lot of data that could give you a sense of what a control may look like, a synthetic control. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, positive, reasons to be collecting and sharing data internationally. That's one thing. I think a second thing I would point to is that uh, in terms of policies, okay, it's very important to uh, encourage that uh, research is undertaken in rare diseases because um, if you look at very small numbers, you know, the incentive for uh, researchers, for um, you know, private enterprise, to invest in research can be very challenging, you know, uh, particularly, you know, you know, they're public companies, they have to think through uh, many considerations. But um, if there are policies in place that encourage research, that stimulate research, encourage collaboration, you know, encourage methodologies, that often gives us, you know, some of the way forward. I know Kathleen was mentioning the Orphan Drug Act, but there have also been, I mean, I think that was a wonderful step, but there have also been many, many positive steps subsequent to that. And I think encouraging those steps of policy and regulation internationally would also be a, a positive step. You know, and I, I want to add on to that as well. Um, I completely agree with everything you said, Amrit. Um, and, uh, you know, you're discussing kind of the, the power of the collective, right? When we look internationally, because we're dealing with these really small numbers. Um, and, and one thing that I often think about is the power of um, psychosocial research and psychosocial treatment um, for people who are experiencing a variety of rare disorders. And so I, I want to speak for a second to um, to what Alana has said about um, being psychologized and medically gaslit. This is not, of course, what I'm talking about here. Um, rare diseases are real and people deserve to be believed. But the struggle at all parts of that journey is also real right it is there's a lot of uncertainty it can feel very isolating as, as you said um and people need psychosocial support all along the way um and i really strongly believe that we can do a lot better in supporting people um, by looking across rare diseases and internationally, to your point, um, looking at psychological things that we can do, interventions. Um, so, you know, my research has found a lot of commonalities across very different biological disease processes, right? The psychological challenges that we've all been talking about today are quite similar, right? 
we're talking about stigma, we're talking about social isolation, we're talking about stress and uncertainty. Um, there are many well-developed psychological interventions like um, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, that have not yet been applied to rare diseases. And relatedly, psychologists have not been appropriately trained in rare disease issues and honestly in disability issues at large. Um, and this is something we're working on with the American Psychological Association. Um, but you know, I see this as really twofold. I think we need to fund better international cross rare disease research on psychosocial support. And I think we need to train our mental health care practitioners about the specific challenges of rare diseases. Um, so I think that could make a huge difference for people at any point in their diagnostic odyssey from searching for diagnosis to, you know, living long term with their condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kathleen, um, you brought up a number of, of really great points there. and. Uh, uh, what I started thinking of was how I think the value of patient organizations can tend to be very overlooked in advancing the field of rare disease. Um, tactically, they can play a unique role in aggregating patients together um, and helping in research recruitment. They can concentrate knowledge from the lived experience and they can pick up on patterns amongst their patient population in a way that an individual expert simply can't due to the rarity of rare diseases. And I'll give you some personal commentary from the encephalitis field. Um, encephalitis can present in a number of ways, but textbook autoimmune encephalitis presents very dramatically with neuropsychiatric symptoms such as uh, seizures, psychosis, and cognitive decline. And it's very alarming. Um, some patients require ICU admission, and in some cases it's fatal. Um, current treatment guidelines have developed in such a way to essentially optimize for getting the patient out of the hospital. And from the medical side, the benchmark for successful treatment is essentially whether the patient can walk and talk after the onset of their illness. But uh, patients are often left with invisible symptoms of an acquired brain injury that are overlooked. And thanks to patients raising their voices and patient support groups, um, researchers are now starting to ask the question, what outcomes actually matter to patients? Um, sure, they can walk and talk, but many are left with debilitating, persistent uh, fatigue and cognitive impairment that prevents them from returning to school or employment. And if this were taken into account earlier on in the development of the encephalitis field, best practices for treatment would be more advanced by now because we would be optimizing for the outcomes for the outcome measures that matter most to patients so that's just one example of how greater patient consultation and greater regard for the patient voice can ensure that limited research dollars and the development of the field remains patient-centered and focused on the things that patients actually value mm -hmm. yeah alana i i would just have to align 100% with you on that. And uh, I think you make some very good points. And similarly, Kathleen, I think you, you make some very important points about, um, you know, providing the appropriate psychosocial support and frameworks. Um, it, it, you know, it, 
it's interesting reflecting on uh, how many opportunities we see now. Uh, you know, we've seen, we're seeing right now some tremendous leaps in science with, you know, technologies that we, you know, when most of us were born, we wouldn't have just ever thought imaginable uh, with gene therapies and with, um, you know, many other quite uh, uh, incredible steps already happening in science. But I think the realization is that um, it's not science alone, but it is uh, very active involvement of the patient community in some of the regulatory steps, for example, um, patient-focused drug development efforts, PFDD efforts, and others have really highlighted insights. Uh, I remember speaking to a patient one time, and um, what she was sharing with me is that uh, I see all of my lab results, and I see all of my metrics that are in my medical charts, but I want you to really understand what matters to me most is the ability for me to go skiing. That's what uh, brings me happiness. That's what brings me joy. That's what matters most in my life. So if there's some combination of these um, medical metrics that can allow me to do what I enjoy, I just want you to understand that that's what would change my life. Now, um, that is uh, you know, one human example, but I think uh, it probably put some color around the idea that you know, there has to be very active dialogue with patients, not just with their carers, but with regulators, with you know, biopharmaceutical companies and many others so that patients are folded in throughout the process. And there can be a bit of humility in understanding you know, what it is that's most important to patients. So yeah, thank you all. Wonderful points and uh, thank you all for sharing those. Um, I wanted to sort of step back a little bit from from that patient group that you're talking about to talk about the the general public um, you know one of the aims of this webinar series is to talk to a very general audience not necessarily just patients and the families of patients of rare diseases so i was interested in asking you and, and kathleen let's let's start with you on this um, what should the general public know about rare diseases so that they can become better advocates I love this question so much. Um, so first of all, you know, we can reiterate what we've been talking about, that rare diseases are common, right? One in 10 Americans will have a rare disease. Um, so we need to be aware that, that they exist, that um, there are challenges around accessing diagnosis, there are challenges around accessing treatment, um, that policies that help um, further those treatments, like Amrit was talking about, can benefit everyone. Um, and also that really rare disease touches everyone, as you were saying earlier, Sean. Um, and I can share uh, some insights here from my own experience. So I've been teaching at Oregon State University for 10 years now. Um, and I often, you know, my classes often involve talking about disability and rare disease. Um, 
And over the course of that time, um, I've had, you know, many wonderful students um, who, you know, sometimes circle back to me after a few years. And it's my favorite thing when they say, you know, oh, I remember that one thing you said and it actually you know, mattered in the real world. Um, but I've had three different students or collaborators who at that time did not have a rare disease diagnosis, then circled back years later and say, I was just diagnosed with a rare disorder and I feel so prepared <laughs> because we spent all this time thinking about kind of the way people can navigate rare disorders. Um, you know, and Alana, we also spend a lot of time talking about patient advocacy and patient empowerment. Um, and so, you know, they always say, well, the first thing I did was I looked for the patient advocacy organization. And, you know, so it's actually really amazing. I'm sure that there are more than three people who that this has happened to and who this will happen to, right? Um, but I think that that just shows that rare disease needs to be part of our everyday conversations mm -hmm. so that people can be aware that they can and will happen to everyone. They'll happen to their families. Um, they might happen to themselves, but so they know um, where to go and what to do um, and they don't feel alone. Mm -hmm. uh, Alana, any thoughts from your side? Yeah. Um... I think the the notion of rare disease can sometimes tend to engender a, a sort of just shrug your shoulders type of response and come with a defeatist attitude of just bluntly like too bad so sad <laughs> that's that's just gonna be the reality for the patient now and this is going to be their fate so um, I think uh, there needs to be more of a narrative shift in our culture um, that it does impact more people than you think and um, it's not it's not some obscure thing that you can just put in a box and forget about and um, pretend won't ever impact you. And additionally, additionally, some are highly treatable and um, also some people, like many people still have a tremendous, have a great quality of life, um, especially if provided with connection and support and um, they experience connect, compassion and empathy from uh, their community members. Yeah, maybe I, I I fully agree, Alana and, and Kathleen, with all of these points. And I think that um, you know one of the things that always strikes me is that uh, understanding is a very important uh, door opener to allow people to care. And um, in a sense, anything that we can do to increase understanding. So this webinar is a very good step. Um, there are many others. Um, but anything that we can do to increase understanding at a very human level is important. And the numbers we talk to are staggering. But at the same time, um, I often think that, you know, even if there is just one patient, that doesn't mean that um, you don't have a right to get help or a right to receive care or, you know, the, I mean, the you know, World Health Organization uh, 80 years ago recognized um, health as a human right. And one of the things we have to, in a sense, be doubly sensitive to is that the, when there are small numbers, 
those numbers can often mean that patients are vulnerable because they don't have you know all the support mechanisms that would surround large diseases um so if anything you know there is a, a need to educate but there is also a need to call out that there are some vulnerabilities here too so just, yeah, just kind of go ahead Lon. echoing uh what amrit had said uh there, there's a lot of value in recognizing rare disease patients as just fellow humans that want to be seen heard and validated and recognizing that we still have hopes and aspirations that extend beyond managing our rare disease and an encouraging word, understanding and kindness goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I, I think that's a, a perfect place to end. I think we've covered a lot of ground, but I, I really like the idea of ending on a note of compassion and kindness. I think we, we need that in this world more than ever, and especially for those who are, are um, dealing with a, a rare disease and the challenges that that brings. Um, so we are unfortunately going to have to end our discussion there. We're almost out of time. Uh, so I wanted to thank our guests very much for being with us today uh, and for sharing not only their knowledge and their wisdom, but uh, also their personal stories. Um, I really, really appreciate that, and I'm sure our audience does as well. Um, a reminder to our viewers that you can see a recording of this webinar as well as all of our previous events in the series at science.org slash webinars. Uh, if you'd like to send us your thoughts on this webinar, you can send an email to webinar at aaas, that's aaas.org. Uh, thank you once again to our amazing panel um, and also to Foundation Ipsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, and goodbye.